This episode is brought to you by Esperion, the lipid management company, singularly focused on lipid management for everybody. To learn more about our unique approach to LDLC reduction, visit Esperion.com. From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief. With this week's Eagle's Eye View, your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. This week, I've chosen three articles that I think highlight different aspects of heart muscle disease that are relevant to our practice. We're going to talk about the diagnosis of arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, the role of measuring cardiovascular biomarkers in patients with acute decompensated HEFREF, and then some key points about the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Let's start with a really nice consensus document looking at arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, and this comes from the European Heart Journal this week. A couple of key points about this condition. First, ARVC was previously considered to be primarily a right ventricular disorder, but increasingly it's clear that we're recognizing both biventricular and occasionally left ventricular subtypes. The pathogenicity of the various gene mutations that have been identified with ARVC is not completely defined, and so caution is recommended in classifying a gene mutation as pathogenic in patients who don't have other phenotypic findings of ARVC. Also, endomyocardiobiopsy or endocardial voltage mapping are invasive, and in this disease, they're difficult to interpret. So these should really be reserved for selected patients where the diagnosis is elusive. Cardiac magnetic resonance imaging should include tissue characterization, which will definitively show evidence of fibro-fatty replacement of the right and or left ventricles. The interpretation of surveillance monitoring for ventricular arrhythmia should consider the possibility of either right ventricular or left ventricular origins in the various disease subtypes. The ECG may be helpful in suggesting either RV or LV involvement. Remember that a low QRS voltage in the limb leads is a marker of LV involvement. The diagnosis of ARVC in pediatric patients is difficult because of the low prevalence of phenotypic disease. So the evaluation of child relatives of proband should include genetic evaluations and then routine surveillance during childhood to watch for the development of the disorder. Right ventricular outflow tract, VT, and Brugada both may present with similar arrhythmias as ARVC, and they should be considered in the differential diagnosis. Right ventricular volume overload due to congenital heart lesions can occur and may also result in findings similar to ARVC. And finally, there are various structural diseases of the heart muscle, like myocarditis or sarcoidosis, that can mimic the LV predominant form of ARVC. And I think the final recommendation of this nice consensus document was that a more global designation of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy should probably indicate the family of genetic diseases that include subtypes of ARVC, left ventricular arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, and biventricular cardiomyopathy. So it's a nice consensus document, and those are the key points, I think, to remember. Last week, you may remember on the podcast, we talked a little bit about the value of soluble ST2 and heart failure management. And this next article came out of the European Heart Journal this week, 
and it looks at the cardiovascular biomarkers in patients with acute decompensated heart failure and compares the group that was randomized in the Pioneer heart failure trial, either to secubitril, valsartan, or enalapril. And the question the study authors asked was, how does the treatment type, whether secubitril, valsartan, versus the enalapril, what is the impact on various cardiac biomarkers, particularly high-sensitivity troponin, soluble ST2, and urinary CGMP levels? So this was a nested biomarker substudy in which those three biomarkers were measured in the almost 700 participants of the Pioneer Heart Failure Trial, and they were measured at baseline one, two, four, and eight weeks. Remember, Pioneer Heart Failure randomized patients with HEF-REF, that is an EF less than or equal to 40%, and an elevated BNP or pro-BNP who had been admitted for acute decompensated heart failure. And they compared what happened with the biomarkers in the Sacubitril-Valsartan group to the enalapil group. The 700 patients, 73% were male, 35% black, median age 62. When they compared enalapril to Sacubitril-Valsartan, the Sacubitril-Valsartan group had a greater decline in high-sensitivity troponin and soluble ST2 with a 16% greater reduction in the high-sensitive troponin and a 9% greater reduction in the ST2 biomarker by four weeks compared to enalapril. The urinary CGMP levels actually increased in the Sacubitril-Valsartan group compared to the enalapril group. The authors concluded from this sub-study that the use of enalapril versus secubitril-valsartan showed changes in these biomarkers that were actually measurable within a few weeks of initiation. And, in fact, changes in high-sensitive troponin and the soluble ST2 were noted within a week of initiation, suggesting that the effects of these therapies on these biomarkers occur rapidly. We don't know yet whether the magnitude of the change in biomarker levels is associated with outcomes, but one of the hopes of serial chronic biomarker testing in a group of patients like this is that potentially the change in biomarker over time may allow us to be more precise in our treatment, particularly things like dose adjustment, dose escalation, etc. I thought it was a really nice article looking at the potential of biomarker assessment and results of therapeutic interventions. Lastly, I wanted to um, borrow a paper that came out this week in the European Heart Journal, and it's the ESC consensus statement on making the diagnosis of HEF-PEF. And as you all know, HEF-PEF is a complicated disorder and actually probably has many causes. And this was an effort to try to bring the clinical audience up to speed on where we're at with how to diagnose heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The prior consensus statement offered by the ESC relied nearly solely on echocardiographic data and natriuretic peptide levels, but both of these have a low sensitivity. So the the notion here was that a revised algorithm would perhaps represent a novel stepwise approach to this diagnosis. And this particular document suggests that there's a pretest assessment, which is a diagnostic workup and an echocardiograph and a natriuretic peptide, and then there could be an advanced workup including functional testing, leading hopefully to a final etiologic workup. Obviously, the pretest assessment is a very clinical evaluation, in, including an electrocardiogram, history physical laboratory tests, and an echo. And echocardiography, of course, is recommended in all of these patients. 
and a preserved DS is defined as an ejection fraction greater than 50%. HEFPEF is suggested by a normal EF, non-dilated left ventricle, and concentric remodeling or left ventricular hypertrophy and left atrial enlargement. The second step in the algorithm includes a detailed echocardiographic measurement and the use of natriuretic peptide levels. And they recommend to account for modifiers like age to create major and minor diagnostic criteria. And the recommended echocardiographic criteria include functional markers like septal and lateral annular peak early diastolic velocities, tricuspid regurgitation velocity, and morphologic markers like left atrial size and left ventricular mass index. Natriuretic peptide cutoff levels have been specified and are adjusted based upon the underlying rhythm, whether it's sinus or atrial fibrillation. And then the authors argue that for each major criteria, two points are awarded and one point for minor criteria, and that a score greater than or equal to five is diagnostic of HEFPEF. They also recommend that if there's an intermediate score, like from two to four points, that additional workup may be recommended, including diastolic stress echocardiography or potentially the use of diastolic function using EDA ratio and tricuspid regurgitant velocity. And sometimes in these kinds of patients where it's muddy and invasive hemodynamic assessment through right heart cath, both at rest and with exercise, might be the next step. A resting wedge greater than 15 millimeters of mercury or an exercise capillary wedge pressure greater than or equal to 25 is said to be diagnostic for HEFPEF in this circumstance. Obviously, the final step is in trying to figure out what is the etiology. And then, of course, looking at blood pressure control, chronotopic competence, arrhythmias, searching for ischemia, and if they're suspected specific myocardial disease like amyloid, or HCM, then a cardiac MRI should be used. I thought it was an interesting document from the ESC, a a fairly novel approach to the diagnosis. Obviously, we have a long way to go with HEFPEF, both in terms of trying to figure out what are the etiologies in a given patient, and even more confusing, of course, is the best therapy. Still looking for agents that have a primary effect on cardiac muscle relaxation. Well, I've enjoyed sharing these three articles with you today, one looking at ARVC, another looking at biomarkers in HEF-REF, and finally a consensus document looking at how do we diagnose HEF-PEF. Thanks for listening to Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org, and you can find the articles as well as the journal scans on the website. And, of course, look for educational features under Education and Meetings tab on acc.org. You can use this tool to sort out the various offerings that we have for you. And until next week, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.